Good morning. Good morning. So glad you're here. I'm Pastor Scott. I think I said that before. I get to teach today. I'm so excited. So thanks for being here. Appreciate it. We're uh, continuing in our teaching series, Brave Heart, Courage in a World of Compromise. And uh, although I'm not going to be teaching out of Judges, uh, this is not off topic. I'll be referring to Judges. We're going to be teaching through Psalm 127. And uh, by the way, that is a song of ascent like uh, Josh mentioned. And in your bulletin, there is an insert uh, that can teach you what that is. We're not going to go through that today, but I wanted to have that in your hand as a tool that you would understand it and it would be helpful to you in your walk. But anyways, um, I got a couple of questions for you. Psalm 127 is really near and dear to my heart. My license plate says P127 because it's my favorite psalm. And I think it's so important. Uh, we also do a thing here every year called the P127 Campout. We didn't get to do it this year because we got snowed out of all things. But uh, so I apologize for that. So this is the P127 Campout right here, right now. So welcome to the P127 Campout. You didn't miss anything. Um, let me ask you a question. How many of you out there have sons or daughters? Raise your hands. Yes. You're being fruitful and multiplying. Very good. Let me ask another question. How many of you out there are sons or daughters? That's kind of silly, right? We're all sons or daughters. But I wanted to point that out because it's so important to understand that when we hear teachings like this, that people don't check out, that you don't think it's just about parenting and just about kids. This psalm is about discipleship. This psalm is about our heritage to the Lord or heritage from the Lord. And because he is our creator and the giver of life, he's our father. So this is for us. So I wanted to give you encouragement in that and uh, encourage you not to check out. And so uh, let's prepare our hearts before the Lord and ask him to really do something in us today. Would you bow your heads and pray? Thank you so much, God, for loving us so much. And because you have created us, we can call you our father and even more so. Uh, because of what Christ has done for us. Lord, we come to you with broken hearts, but in Christ with humble confidence. And Lord, hopefully our hearts are broken because we know that our sin is an offense to you. And Lord, if our hearts are not broken, we ask you to gently break them for those things that break yours. God, we're humbled and thankful that even in our sin, you have not left us, but rather you have satisfied your own demand for perfect justice for us because we the offenders could not. That's amazing. We're laid low in knowing that in your love and mercy you did not sacrifice your justice, but instead you sacrificed your son on our behalf. That blows our mind, God. We can't even understand it sometimes. It's beyond our reasoning, yet we believe it to be true and we're humbled by that truth. And so it's only in Christ that we come in confidence to you and ask you to please bring healing to us, redemption to those of us that don't know you, and sanctification to us individually, but also our community, God. Do that through your word and through your spirit. Also through your spirit, God, I ask you to guide my words today as I present your word. Guide all of our hearts and minds and change us that we might know you more, walk more humbly with more love and more confidence and obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we're going to jump right into it. I got a lot of information today. I promise I'll go long today. So just uh, know that right off the bat. Uh, a Song of Ascent, this is of Solomon. Solomon is... Uh, the writer of this psalm, says, unless the Lord builds the house, Psalm 127, beginning in verse one, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord the fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior or the children of one's youth. 
Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now let me dissect this a little bit in brief and then we'll embellish on it as we go through our teaching. You have to understand, Ray talked about this a few weeks ago or maybe it was last week, that families in this culture were uh, your source of prominence, your source of provision, your source of protection and position in the community. So the bigger the family, uh, the more prominence you had. Uh, the bigger the family, the more provision you had because everybody pitches in. And the bigger the family, the more protection you had because there's strength in numbers. And so when we look at this and we see the Lord builds the house, God doesn't really build houses with bricks and sticks. He builds families. And that's what it's talking about. That's what house means. And if God's not in it building our families, it's in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. What is city? Cities are our communities. And just as families are made up of children who grow up and become parents, who have children who grow up and become parents, cities are made up of families and communities are made up of families. And so in this day, uh, cities were sometimes surrounded by a wall and there were watchmen that watched out. But it's interesting that it says the watchman stays awake in vain. Uh, when an enemy is gonna attack, he'll probably do it in the dark because we're most vulnerable at night because we're sleeping, we're not paying attention. And so we have to keep our eye on that. But if God's not our true protector, then the watchmen watch in vain. Sometimes we live our lives in such a way in this society that it's like king of the hill. You know, the person with the most toys wins or you know, the biggest position or whatever that might be. But that's kind of living a life in vain. It says if you rise up early and go, to late, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, if the glory is about us, it's in vain. And by the way, it's never, ever, ever gonna be enough. That's why we don't find rest in bringing ourselves glory. Because it says, he gives his beloved. Who's a beloved? We are, those who believe in Christ, that follow him, that think that everything comes from him, that know that everything comes of him. He gives us sleep, rest. And there's another translation that even says that he gives his beloved in his sleep, rest. So I, because God never sleeps, I know that means that when we're sleeping, he's still working in our behalf so that we can sleep tomorrow too. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. A better way to put it so you might understand is, is we are all children of God and we're a legacy to the Lord. Genesis talks about the generations of creation. It all started at the beginning. God's our creator. He gives us life. He knits us together in our mother's womb. So we're our, a legacy to him, a heritage from him. We're supposed to live our lives that he's given us to glorify him and not ourselves. And children are a heritage from the Lord. We have children, so it's, they're not a legacy to us. They're not supposed to bring us glory. They're supposed to bring God glory, just like we are ourselves as children of God. This is the interesting part. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. I've got some archery equipment up here. I'm going to do a demonstration. I'm going to need an apple and a volunteer pretty soon. So, no, not really. Um, but we have to understand that in this culture, there were certainly enemies, but... Um, there's a greater war going on besides physical. We don't battle against flesh and blood, right? There's powers and principalities. And so there's a war for the hearts and souls of us and for our children. And because our children, because we are a heritage to the Lord, we're like arrows. We're like weapons in the hand of a warrior. Okay? So we need to be fashioned well to be able to do our jobs to fight this fight uh, for the hearts and souls of ourselves and our children. What does it mean when it says children of one's youth? That means that we're, there's a season to where we have children and we only have so long to raise our kids before they're gone. So don't lose sight of that time that you have. Usually it's in our younger years before we turn old and gray and can't keep up with them, right? So the children of one's youth, that just means that there's a season. And it says, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. So we're blessed by having children and being to carry on this heritage to the Lord. And it says, he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. If you think about a gate, we talked about the walls of a city. They have gates where you can come and go. Some of you might live in gated communities. If someone were to come and try and rob your house or hurt somebody, they're not going to drive through the wall. Where are they going to go? They're going to go to the gate. 
The gate and the walls are the most vulnerable places and we have to liken that to the most vulnerable places in, in us where we open ourselves to vulnerability. So remember that as we, as we go along. So the first fill in the blank says, faith in anything plus faith in God equals vanity. Faith in God plus faith in nothing equals rest. This is kind of a twofold thing that I want to explain to you. It's, it's, we don't have a life and we add Jesus, so it's not, it's not life plus Jesus. He's not an add-on, but it's also not God plus something else in life that's just as important to him. So it's, it's, it's the same thing, but it's, it's a little bit different. And so we have to understand that. I can't uh, count my identity as the things, and if things aren't going well my way, if I don't have the job I want or as much money as I want or whatever it might be, uh, and Jesus, you know, you're just not doing your job for me. No, that's vanity. But it's also, you know, I believe many, many Christians truly do believe Jesus is their Lord and Savior and they do all they can to walk with him each and every day. But there's something in them that they say, but I have to have this too. And they might say, I'm a Christian, but my identity is my job. My identity is my sexuality. My identity is my kids. My identity is the car I drive or the house I live in or the neighborhood I live in, whatever. It's, you can't do that. God does not share his glory with anybody or anything. And so it's vanity to think such things. And so this faith that we're talking about is a saving faith. It's not like the faith that you have in the chair that you're sitting in that it's not going to collapse. Um, it's a saving faith. And God puts that in us. We're hardwired to do that. So we all have a saving faith capacity but it's what we invest that faith in that is, is our challenge sometimes. Do we invest it in natural things like bucks and brawn and beauty and brains? Or do we invest it in supernatural things, eternal things, right? So we have to remember that. It's a precious faith. And so we have to walk in faith and not by... Right, right. And so... Faith isn't something that like, it's like our insurance card that we pull out of our wallet when we need it. Oh, here's the faith card. You know, it's all beat up and you can't read it. You're going, what is this? I can't do this. Faith is effectual for you and I. And it's for an intended purpose. And it's the same for everything, everybody else. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What I want you to notice about that is it says we're saved through faith. So it's amazing to me that our faith, God gives us the ability to believe before he actually saves us. Because if we don't really believe that we're saved, we're probably you know, just thinking that we could lose our salvation and we get all messed up in that. But God gives us the faith to believe and then he saves us. And how does he do that? He created us in Christ. But it also says it's not of your own doing because it's, if it's our own doing, what is that? We're talking about it today. Vanity, right? It's a gift from God, not as a result of works so that you can boast, so you can be vain. For we are his workmanship, God created us, we didn't create him. He created us in Christ Jesus for good works God prepared before and that we should walk in them. Why? So that ultimately we could bring him glory and, our, and bring, that brings our ultimate rest. So where do you rest? We have to rest in God. And that's the question is, does where you lay your head bring you rest? And I don't mean that um, you don't struggle in your job or your family or uh, you might not be, ever be frustrated and you know it's blue skies every day just because you're a Christian. That's not what the Bible says. It's despite those things and in the midst of those things, can you lay your head on the pillow of faith in a way that it brings you rest, that you can sleep and not, not toss and turn all night? I hope you can. But sometimes, and this is because we have a sin nature in us, we do toss and turn. It's not really natural for us to say, yeah, every minute of every day I trust in God. I think if I asked you to raise your hand, uh, if you did, you'd be lying because we struggle with that. That's why we need God, right? 
So Matthew eleven twenty nine, sweet words from Jesus. Take your, my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lonely and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Ah, I want to find rest for my soul. Don't you want to find rest for your soul? But you have within you this sin nature that competes with your God image and finding rest all the time, every minute of the day is kind of a struggle for us. So if it's a struggle for us as adults who have read the Bible and know God and have accepted Christ, how much more so is it unnatural and a struggle for our children who are a little immature? So we're supposed to be good stewards of our children, teaching them to invest their faith that God gave them to trust in him for an intended purpose, which he prepared beforehand for them to do, that they would find rest. How, do that, how does that happen? Who do they look to? When they have a, can't have a concept of God, they look to us. So if we're not restful, they're not gonna be restful. And that's where the problem is. And I call this problem the compounded generational equation. Some of you have taken Financial Peace University or some financial class where you learn the, the blessing of compounded interest. You have capital, you invest that capital and earns interest and so your capital grows. And then you, earn, you, you invest the greater capital and it earns more interest and there's this exponential equation where it grows and grows and grows. It's a great blessing when it comes to finances but also it's a great curse when it comes to debt because you have debt, it earns interest, your debt grows which earns greater interest, and that grows and grows, and it's an exponential equation. It's the same thing generationally when we don't invest our faith in the right way because our faith will grow exponentially in God, but it'll also grow exponentially in our sin. And it's a generational problem. It's an equation. I, I found this, uh, this book. It's called A Family Well-Ordered. And it says, uh, it's by this guy, Cotton Mather. It was published in 1699. Pretty old book, but amazing truths in it. It says in one part, as the great God, who at the beginning said, let us make man in our image, has made man a sociable creature. creature. So it is evident that families are the nurseries of all societies. And so the first combinations of all mankind, well-ordered families naturally produce good order in society. And that's next, your next fill-in, is that families are the nurseries where the citizens of society are grown. But the eternal threat to the spiritual transformation and stability of this generation is a clear and present danger. John 10.10, 10, at the beginning it says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's a thief. He's a murderer. He is a destroyer, and we see that in our society all day long. But don't miss the word in the middle of that part of the verse. It says, he comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. It's his only agenda. He's out for you. He's out for your kids. He's out to wreck society, and he's doing a pretty good job. I want to say a word about these, these cultural agendas that we're faced with. You turn on the news. It's pretty depressing. Drugs are being legalized and made okay. Marriage is being redefined. There's a self-serving government that's kind of undoing the Constitution. And I agree, those things are destructive. And I agree that there's evil and sin at the center of those agendas. But we as Christians have a greater hope, and we've called to respond in a particular way. The wrong way is to attack those groups and fight with them. If we're not fighting against flesh and blood, we ought not to be attacking them. We ought to know that they're captives of the enemy. We ought to appeal to them with the gospel. And so when we look at these problems, we have to first say, whose fault is it? But that's not where we stop. Because we can easily go, oh, it's their fault, it's their fault. Well, who are they? They're our friends and our family and those in society. And who are we? We're part of the fabric of society. So I must first look at me if I'm going to criticize the sins of society and say, okay, what did I do? Because sometimes when we talk about this and, and I blame society or I blame you, you're going to say, what did I do? That's a great question. But maybe the better question is, what didn't you do? Or what didn't I do when it came to discipling my children or my friends and my family? Right? 
Because we gotta cut the blame game short. Because let's just, let's just finish it right now. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter one. It's Adam and Eve's fault. Okay? And so, is going back to the compound general equation, that's cutting the blame game short. The healing of our society or ourselves is not going to happen by explaining whose fault it is. Don't be an accuser like our enemy. I'm imperfect. And I ought to live life in such a way that others see that I'm following Christ and he can even save a wretch like me. Okay, we must take responsibility for our own faith and convictions and make conscious choices to follow Christ and bring that into the next generation. Uh, one of the fill-ins last week that Ray had was that sin is violating God's will revealed in his word. One of the things that he calls us to in his word is to make disciples, teaching them all that I have taught you. So are we not doing that? Is that our sin? And before you get all guilt-written, did someone teach you that? So you can try and do this blame game thing, but again, it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. So that's not the answer. The answer is we need to stand up. We need to ourselves bow at the knee and repent for what we haven't done and start doing what God has called us to do in his strength and not our own. Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Everyone's going to answer to God, and we're following him. By the way, what's his example? His example is found in Numbers 14, 18, and it says, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, but he will by no means clear the guilty. So are you abounding in love? Are you slow to anger? Do you have this steadfast, durable love? Are you forgiving iniquities and transgressions and focusing on not the sin, not dismissing the sin, but seeing it as, as a recognition that Oh, this person or these people, my kids or whoever they are, they need Christ. <laughs> we all work at it. We have to keep working at it. And it's, but some people say, well, it says that God's going to punish the third and the fourth generation. It doesn't say that. It says visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. That means God's going to go to the third and the fourth generation and he's going to go, are you recycling your father's sin that they taught you? Because if you are, now it's your sin, and I'm going to punish you for that. But if you follow me, I will bless you for that. And it won't matter what your father in the three and four generations before you did. So we have to recognize that. We have to understand that the fruit of the loom grows on a generational tree. Did I just say fruit of the loom? He just said fruit of the loom grows on a tree. The the fruit of the womb grows. All right, let's focus here. Fruit of the womb grows on a generational tree. All right, I need to take a drink of water after that. It's all right, Pastor. Come on now. I told you I was imperfect. And that's the point, too, is that we're all prodigals. We're all idol factories in some way, and we make our sons and daughters or those that we evangelize to prodigals by throw, showing them that our theology or our religion has no credibility because we might talk it, but we don't walk it. And we also do that by placing other gods in our home, and so we place that in our, the center of our children's lives. The, our children's, the home is the place where our children are shaped, where arrows are formed one of my favorite pastors did a great teaching, and he talks about how we become idol factories. So let's watch this video. And so you know you're enslaved, or you know you're an addict. We don't like to use that word, but we're probably, all of us, in, in some degree, when we pursue idols, we're addicts to those idols. You know you're an addict, you know you're enslaved when you're trying to deal with your distress with the very thing that caused your distress. And uh, it, that's what drives alcoholism, it, perfectionism. You just keep driven deeper into that, thinking maybe just a little bit more. I'm gonna try a little bit harder. I just need a little bit more of, of that. And what's interesting about idols, and you've heard us talk about this a lot around here, but idols will enslave you. They drive you when you seek them. You think that you'll never be happy without it. It's adding that to Jesus, thinking I have to have this to be happy, and therefore you'll do anything to get it. I mean, I've seen guys... 
uh, destroy their families for their career, and not just their families. They're so enslaved by it, and they're so driven by it, and they're willing to even give up their family. They give up their integrity. They give up their, their health. They give up their whole life. I've seen that happen. So it drives you when you seek it, and it disappoints you when you get it. But you never feel that you have enough, and you never will, because you're trying to fill a void inside of you that ultimately only God can fill. And uh, your satisfaction, your happiness really can only be found in him. That's, yeah, in temporal things, you can find it in a temporary way, but if you want infinite and eternal satisfaction, it's only found in God. And what's interesting about idols also is that they will devastate you when you lose them. You're always worried about losing them. It creates this anxiety. Typically, anxiety is a collapsing uh, counterfeit God when we have extreme anxiety in our life because you guys know as well as I know your relationship with God that's not going to collapse it, it's sure it's certain there's an assurance there so your anxiety is not coming from from you and God it's coming from some other probably counterfeit God that you're trying to substitute God with let me give you uh, just another kind of list here so that we understand this so our culture let me give you just some of our idols of our culture I've already listed some but Here's a shorter, another short list. Our culture idolizes romantic and sexual fulfillment to the point that anything you sacrifice for it is okay so long as you're happy. And so a woman can tear apart her family and devastate her kids because she finally realizes she married the wrong person and she needs to find true love. And we all say in our culture, well, she's just being true to herself. It's idolatry. Or our culture idolizes success. A man can neglect his wife and kids in order to get ahead, and we say in our culture, well, that's just the price of success. You'll never succeed in this world unless you work long hours and take very few days off. Or our culture also idolizes self. It's that expressive individualism, we've talked about it here, or that sovereign self. And so someone in our culture gets pregnant at an inconvenient time, and so they eliminate the child in an abortion, and we say, hey, if having a kid will mess up your life, then you need to do what you need to do. That's your right. And that's our culture. Pretty consistent with what we're talking about, isn't it? So we are prodigals ourselves, and we make prodigals. So that's vanity. But vanity, we don't, it's not intentional. We don't wake up in the morning and say, hmm, how am I going to be more vain today? We're not intentionally vain. We're, we're naturally vain. Um, there's a, a book called New Morning Mercies. It's a devotional by, by Paul David Tripp. And this is what he says in there. I don't know how much you've thought about this, but faith isn't natural for you and me. Doubt is natural. Fear is natural. Living on the basis of your collective experience is natural. Pushing the current catalog of personal what-ifs through your mind before you go to sleep and wake up in the morning is natural. Living based on the thinking of your brain and your physical sense is natural. Envying the life of someone else and wondering why it isn't your life is natural. Wishing you were more sovereign over people, situations, and locations that you'll ever be is natural. Manipulating your way into personal control so you can guarantee that you will uh, that you will get what you think you need is natural. This is very encouraging, isn't it? Looking horizontally for places that you will only ever find vertically is natural. Anxiously wishing for uh, change in the things that you have no ability to change is natural. Giving way to despondency, to discouragement, depression, and despair is natural. Numbing yourself with busyness, material things, media, food, or some other substance is natural. Lowering your standard to deal with your disappointment is natural, but faith simply is not natural to us. So in grace, God grants us to believe, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, faith really is the gift of God. That's awesome. But it's also frightening at the same time, isn't it? And so what is it about us? We need to be very intentional and definite about what is not natural to us. That's, this is why God's word encourages us to work out your salvation with feeling trembling. Working out takes a little bit of breaking of a sweat. Do not grow weary in fighting the good fight, right? Amen. Press on towards the prize. These are the things God calls us to, but it has to begin with God's provision and investing our faith that he is giving us in him and not in other things. 
Number three, fill in, unless we are transformed by the gospel, broken and unregenerate, we will put, be put to shame when we are encounter our enemies. Remember that vulnerable spot, the gate. Following Jesus is dangerous, and you need to know that. So if you're not a follower of Christ, you need to know that beforehand, but it's not as dangerous as it is not following Christ. Following Christ is like picking a fight with the world. So this compound generational equation has to work for us and not against us. We have to pass on our faith. It has to be generational. And uh, Paul writes his, his sweet friend, Timothy, two letters. In the second letter that he wrote to him, he talks about this generational faith that was passed on through Timothy's grandmother and mother. And he tells him to do a particular thing with it. It says in 2 Timothy 1, 6 through 12, for this reason I remind you to fan into the to flame the gift of God. What is that? It's this faith that his grandmother and mother passed on him, which is in, through, in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Do you want to live a life of fear? That means cowardice and timidity? Or do you want to live a life of power and love and self-control? It says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. It's about his power, not your power. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus beforehand, before the ages began. Sound familiar? Ephesians 2 that we just talked about, in which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel is our power. It gives us resurrection power. It's also filled with love and it offers us self-control for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle teacher which, I, which is why I suffer as I do. We're gonna suffer in this world. Would you rather suffer with fear and timidity or would you rather suffer with Christ at your side with power, love, and self-control? Yeah. So grandma and mom were passing on this, general, this generational faith. The generational compound equation was working well in Timothy's behalf. I want to give you an example now of uh, archers and arrows. We talked about arrows being like uh, uh, being weapons in the hand of a warrior. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a little demonstration here. Try and follow along. I hope I'm not going to confuse you. I need to bring out my notes so I don't confuse myself. Yeah, so we need that volunteer in the apple. No, we don't really. So here's an arrow, and here's a bow. The first thing I want to say is about the bow. In this analogy, I want us to see this as God and what we believe about him. We have to have confidence in the strength of this bow, okay? Okay. So I'm gonna put this aside for a second. Next, I wanna talk about arrows. These are our disciples. They're us when we're being discipled. This arrow is formed a particular way. It's straight, that it might fly straight and not go crooked. It has a particular weight to it. Weight is significance. The gospel in us needs to, it brings significance to our lives. Because what's true is when we get to our destination, if we have no significance, it's not going to penetrate and do its job. Arrows are also fashioned with what's called spine. This is the rigidity of the, the arrow. Because what's true is when an arrow is driven, it needs to have spine to endure that. But it, when it also makes an impact, it needs to endure the impact. An arrow also has what's called fletching on the back. I'll liken this to the Holy Spirit. This fletching keeps it balanced and true when it, is, when it is encountering opposing forces and opposing wind. It helps it rise above the opposing wind. Okay? The arrow also has a point. This is really sharp. I'll try not to draw any blood up here. But the point uh, is there so actually when it hits its mark, it'll stick and do its job. Okay? But the weight doesn't make any difference. The point doesn't make any difference. The fleshing doesn't make any difference. The, the spine doesn't make any difference if the arrow is not balanced. It all has to work together to do its job when it gets to its destination. Arrows in the hands of a warrior fighting for the hearts and souls 
of us and for those that God calls us to. Let's look at the bow. The bow, remember what this signifies, right? God, what we believe him to be, we believe in his strength. Um, on the bow, there's this thing called a string. Okay, I'm gonna say that this string is our faith. Okay, our faith is connected above to God and below in the world. And between our obedience to God and living in the world, what is there? Tension. There's tension. But what you have to know about this string, if you came up here and looked at it, you'd notice it's not just one string. It's a cord of many strands. You guys know what that means biblically, right? We need to have people in our faith community that will give us extra strength to deal with this tension that we have. But also, this string, if you, if you might be able to see it, there's some extra durable material right in the center just like we have to have extra durability right in the center of our faith because when it's time to fire an arrow, right? I won't do that. <laughs> when it's time to fire an arrow, your faith is going to be stretched and tested, okay? There will be nothing that stretches your faith more than discipleship and especially the discipleship of your kids. Parents, can you say amen? Yeah. Our faith is going to be stretched, okay? So there has to be some extra durability. Okay, so I promise I'll be careful. Where the arrow meets the string, listen. Did you hear that? It's called the knocking point, and there's a click, and it goes into the arrow. So when we disciple people, our children, our faith needs to penetrate into the arrow for it to be guided well because the string is the, the force which we send out our children into the world, right? So does that make sense? Okay, and so I'm gonna take this off again. I'm gonna hurt somebody. When an archer draws back his bow, there's what's called an anchor point. And what that means is when he draws back, he needs to anchor in the same place consistently. Because if I fire one arrow and my anchor point is out here, it's going to go one direction. And if I bring it back here, it's going to go another direction. If I have it too low, it's going to go another direction. So we have to be consistent in our anchor point when we're discipling people because otherwise we'll confuse them and they'll become frustrated. Right? The Bible says don't exacerbate your children. So we can't say on one Sunday that, hey, it's important that you go to church. You're going to go to church and get up and get dressed. And then the next Sunday, say, yeah, there's a ball game on. We're not going to church today. It's, it's confusing for them. In other ways, we can't be parents and say, you have to obey your parents. You have to do this or you have to do that. And then when you want to get your needs met, you say, don't tell your mother. Don't tell your father. We have to be consistent. We have to have a consistent anchoring point. Okay, the vertical orientation that the archer and the bow has affects the horizontal flight of the arrow. Okay, you get it? Here's what's even cooler. Is that when the archer grips the bow, if you hang on to your bow and you're going to fire an arrow, you're hanging on to it like you're cracking walnuts... It's going to affect the follow-through because you're hanging on in your own strength and you're going to be pushing the bow and it's going to affect the flight of the arrow. It's the same thing when we're discipling and we're trying to live out our own life of discipleship that if it's in our own strength, it's going to affect our flight because we're relying on our strength and not God's strength. So what we have to do is we have to rest in God and a true archer that has great form where he holds on to the bow or holds on to God, he is going to rest it. He's going to rest it in his hand. But here's what's also true. When you rest the bow in your hand, where does the arrow also rest? This is where the rubber meets the road. I rest in God. The arrow I'm forming and firing rests in God too. Okay? All right. Put this stuff down. But here's what's scary and why we need God is an arrow formed and fired perfectly is still exposed to, to the elements. 
there's opposing winds, and they could be drastic winds, and I would agree that in our today's society, there's some pretty harsh winds coming our way. There's obstacles, there's trees and bushes and grass and stuff like that that affects an archer. And so, same way in our discipling of our kids, our fashioning of our arrows, but an arrow that has weight and significance, has a spine, has a good point, is fletched well, is balanced, is gonna do much better against the elements than a flimsy, crooked, dull-pointed, no spine, no fletching arrow will do. So we have to trust at some point, and this is hard for parents, trust the flight of the arrow. Trust that what, how you fashion that arrow, they're gonna do well when they're fired out and when they get to the gate that they won't be put to shame. Does that make sense? Okay, so fill in number four is the war for the hearts and souls of the next generation will be fought with the weapons forged by and for the Lord and the gates of hell will not prevail. Okay, when our children are not formed through faith alone, in God alone, through Christ alone, they will be conformed into broken arrows not ready for battle, flying through life in vain, and will be put to shame in the most vulnerable places in our lives. Broken arrows will always miss the mark. But here's what's true. Every single one of us is a broken arrow. If it started with Adam and Eve and the generations of sin that we look at the Bible, we're broken people. So we have to have God. But a broken arrow in the hands of an almighty God, armed with the gospel, can fly straight. It can hit the mark. Not because of what we do, but because of what God does in us. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Parenting and discipleship will, will test you. It will test your faith. Sometimes because we are broken arrows, um, we don't know what that means. We don't really know that we're broken because no one's really told us so. But healthy people will, will love on you and speak the truth in love. And sometimes that's hard to accept, but it's even harder to navigate through. Here at Desert Breeze, we have lots of programs that will help you broken arrows, help us broken arrows work through our junk. Okay? Help straighten us out. Help fix broken arrows. We have the Men's 33 series that's a discipleship class for men that helps you to know who you are and why you are the way you are to look back and say, oh, that's where I got broken. Oh, here's what's going to help me not be so broken. There's the same program for women. It's called Healing from the Inside Out. We have Mending the Soul for men and women. We have Celebrate Recovery. We have all kinds of programs to to help fix broken arrows. We're a church full of broken arrows. If you think you're not a broken arrow... I'm trying to speak to you here right now. We're all broken arrows. <laughs> uh, we must fight for the salvation of our children. I put another uh, thing in your bulletin. It's we need to talk. This is something we use at the P127 camp out. Relationship with your kids is so very important and you need to get with them and let them know that you want to be a student of them. You want to know what's going inside of their hearts, what they hope for, what they're afraid of. And so you need to ask them some questions and let them know that you're not going to make them feel stupid or ashamed or wrong and correct them to answer a particular way. You need to learn things about your kids by digging into their hearts. And that happens through something like this. This is an investigative, intentional, safe, welcoming, purposeful, and conversational exercise. Remember what I said about exercise? Sometimes you got to break a sweat. And there's nothing more frustrating for me as a parent than when I try and talk to my kids and they give me one-word answers. <sighs> got to break a sweat. Got to try and draw them out. Got to try and dig in a little bit. That's what we have to do. And we have to ask them serious questions. And again, make it safe for them that you really want to know answers to questions like, what's it like, for you? What's it like to live in our family for you? And just listen. Listen and learn and encourage. What do you want me to know about you? Our kids need to know that we notice them and we know that they're good at something. And uh, if we don't know those things and they want us to know something about them, then it's okay they tell us. Well, I want to do this. Oh, I didn't know that. Or I'm afraid of this. Oh, I didn't know that. Thank you for telling me. What are you most afraid of concerning our family? Sometimes in our brokenness, there's havoc that goes on our families. Some of you came from horrendous 
families. And there's yelling and screaming going on here. Kids are cowering in the corner and they're afraid inside, but they're afraid to say something because you're kind of the source of the problem or where the, the problem. Or they might be afraid that the, what's going on in the family next door might be going on in the family indoors. So you need to find out what are you afraid of? And then you have to give them confidence. Not that they're wrong or they have uh, wrong fears, but to assure them that that's not something you need to be afraid about. Then you need to ask him the question. Here's a scary one. How am I doing as a parent? How am I doing as a parent? Now, I'm not encouraging you to ramp up your two-and-a-half-year-old to say, so how am I doing here? No, you, you talk to those and you gain that information, but you need to just listen. And what I know you're going to encounter is you're going to encounter, oh, I love you so much and I'm so thankful that you're my parent. But here's, here's something I need. So it's gonna be affirming, but it's gonna be convicting at the same time, but you need to build that kind of a relationship with your kids and let them know that you love them, that you're for them and not against them. Oh, this sounds familiar. That you'll protect them, but more so that you're gonna follow God and you're gonna show them how to follow God too. It's all about relationship. We need to fight. Stop fighting with our kids about their salvation and start fighting for their salvation. We have um, God's word, right, to fight with, and it's sharper than what? Two-edged sword. sword. We need to stop whacking the limbs off people with God's word and start equipping them with God's word. We need to believe ourselves that Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. I, uh, I have some more... Uh, from that book from 1699, I had to change the words a little bit because it was so 1699. Uh, and so to make it understandable, but I, wanted, I read this last night and I felt bad because it, it's, it sounded very condemning and I don't want this to be condemning. Uh, but what, what I realized last night was after the message, someone gave me a compliment uh, and I'm sure they were well-intended, but it wasn't really a compliment for me as a pastor. I walked by and they said, thank you so much, that was so entertaining. I was like, oh, I hope it was so much more entertaining, more than entertaining for you. And so when I give you this, I just want us to see the seriousness of discipleship and especially raising kids. A well-ordered family, it says, parents, consider the condition of your children and the loud cry for their condition. To work hard for their salvation, what an army of powerful thoughts show themselves at once and capture your heart. Subdue them with with a just care for the salvation of your children. Don't you know that your children have precious and immortal souls within them? They are not all flesh. The souls of your children must survive their bodies and are better and higher and nobler things than their bodies. Are you concerned that their bodies may be fed? You should be more concerned that their souls may not be starved or go without the bread of life. Are you concerned that their bodies be clothed? You should be more concerned that their souls may not be naked or go without the garments of righteousness. Are you unwilling that their bodies labor under sickness and deformities? You should be more unwilling that their souls are pining away in their iniquities. Parents, are your children but the children of pigs? If you disregard their souls, truly you call them so. Our kids are a precious gift from God. He's placed them in our hands that we might carry on and pass on this heritage to the Lord so that they can rest, so that we can rest. I hope that's, in a weird way, encouraging to you what I just read. So what does your life tell your kids about who Jesus is or who your Jesus is, Jesus asked his disciples, who, are, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven, right? And so what he was saying is that, yeah, I'm here before you, but that is supernatural that God told you that, okay? And so we need to share the gospel with our kids and, and, and people that we disciple with But God does the work in their hearts. We don't. So we just need to trust God that he will do that when we speak his truth. Getting anyone to believe in God is God's doing. So does his truth in your life draw people to him or push people away? I'm not saying it's up to you, 
but you show evidence that it either works or doesn't work, whether it's true or not. Our heritage is in the Lord, and it must be guarded with the truth of his word. And so do you have confidence in his word? Do you really believe that you're armed with the gospel to fight this good fight? It says in uh, Isaiah 54, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is, goes along with our teaching. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. He's for us. He's the one that does the job. It's his battle, and we join him in it. So is God for us? If God is for us, finish it, who could be against us, right? So there's really no contest. But the scary thing is, is if God's not fighting for us, he's fighting with us, or we're fighting with him, and there's no contest, well, that's hellfire and brimstone, fear tactics. Well, it might be, but it's true. And you can't, you can't just stop there. So do you and your kids and those who you evangelize to fear God in the right way? Fill in number five, redemptive fear turns us back to God and allows us to be sanctified through our suffering. Suffering is not a sign God has abandoned us and may very well be a sign of him restoring our hearts to him. This comes from our teaching last week where Ray taught through Judges chapter 10 where these people of God supposedly were worshiping other gods and they came to their senses in the middle of their sin as they were in misery, they were gonna be attacked and they came to God and said, well, they repented and they say, we have sinned against you. And what was God's answer to them? Do you remember? It was, I'm going to save you no more. But they understood in their sin that that didn't mean that God was, again, was going to abandon them. They came to believe in God that he wasn't going to leave them or forsake them. So he, they said, do what seems best to you. But they also said, only please deliver us this day. So they knew that save you no more didn't mean that he was going to be abandoned them. And there's this beautiful picture of the father that says he became impatient over their misery. God doesn't want to see us suffer. That's why he's jealous of us and he's red-faced because we're not, we're not getting it. He wants the best for us. He has the best for us. But he's also not going to sacrifice some of our suffering that it might restore us to him. And so when we're discipling people, you might be telling them truth after truth after truth, especially your kids, but don't spare your kids from consequences. That's not going to teach them anything. If you rescue them all the time, they're not going to learn. And so appropriately allow your kids to uh, suffer some consequences that they choose. It's important. Parenting and discipleship is hard. But what makes it harder is this thing that we struggle with. When we're trying to teach them what's not natural to them, we're struggling with what's not natural to us. And so that's sometimes why we rescue people from consequences because it's more about getting our needs met than it is getting their needs met. Remember that devotional I shared with you by Paul Tripp? It goes on to say, I'll end with how I, or begin with how I end. And so in grace, God grants us to believe, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, faith really is the gift of God. There is no more counterintuitive function to the average sin-damaged human being than faith in God. Sure, we'll put our faith in lots of things, but not in God we cannot hear, who makes promises so grand they seem impossible to keep. God gives us the power to, to first believe, but he doesn't stop there. By grace, he works in the situations, locations, and relationships of everyday life to craft, hammer, bend, and mold us into people who build lives based on the radical belief that he really does exist and really, he really does reward those who seek him. Next time you face the unexpected, a moment of difficulty you don't really want to go through, remember that such a moment doesn't picture a God who has forgotten you, but one who is near to you and doing in you a very good thing. He is rescuing you from thinking that you can live the life you were meant to live while relying on the inadequate resources of your wisdom, experience, righteousness, and strength. And he is transforming you into a person who lives life, uh, lives a life shaped by radical God-centered faith. He is the ultimate craftsman, and we are his clay. He, has, he will not take us off his wheels 
until his fingers have molded us into those who really do believe and don't doubt. Through our suffering, that's where the substance of our faith comes up because it's tested. And we have to trust God to test us and uh, even be willing to suffer our own consequences. So whether we are parenting children or leading adults, our Savior will be found out by our religion and, and in our suffering. So we have to understand that. What are we teaching people? Who is that? Religion is the value and belief that we hold that guides our lives based on the object of our faith and worship. What are we worshiping? What's the object of our faith? What do we believe that those things or that thing or that God is going to give for us and give to us and do for us? Here's up Psalm 1, uh, 127.1 stated in a positive way. If God builds the house, those who build it won't labor in vain. Praise God. We can rest because we know God never does. Remember what I said about verse 2? He said he gives his beloved sleep, but also that he gives his beloved in his sleep. God never rests. Some of you have um, an unrest that's been placed in you more so than others. Some of you have been raised by great parents, come up in a great home. You're still broken arrows, but you're not as broken as some people. Some people had no parents at all. Some people had parents raising them that were abusing them and exploiting them. I am so sorry. They were supposed to be protecting you and shaping you and pointing to God and they were doing the complete opposite. And that's hideous. Some of you are single moms out there that are trying to raise kids with no help at all and you need help. You're a broken arrow trying to fashion straight arrows and you feel abandoned and left out but you're not. We're here. We're your church. We want to help. But whether you're abused or you're uh, abandoned or you're a widow in one way or another, this is what the Bible says about God. His name is the Lord. Rejoice before him. Well, how can I rejoice when I've been abandoned and abused and broken and I'm all alone? It says his name is the Lord. Rejoice before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. That's what God says about himself and his word. This is what God says about you. I'd like you to maybe, if you want to, close your eyes and just listen to this. All you broken arrows, all of us broken arrows. Psalm 139, this is from the New Living Translation. Oh Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down and stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go to heaven, you are there. That's the good days. If I go to the grave, you are there. That's the bad days. If I go to if I rise, if I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become light, but even in darkness I cannot hide from you. To you the night shines as brightest day. Darkness and light are the same for you. We always try and hide from God, but he sees and he knows what we need. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in the utter seclusion and as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was, rec my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I cannot even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. Isn't that sweet? God loves you so much. He knit you together in your mother's womb. 
You are heritage to him. Every one of you is a gift from God, a reward of the womb. But because of our sin, we're all broken arrows, but God through Christ fixes broken arrows. So number eight, the last villain, apart from God, all our efforts are anxious toil and come without true rest. But we can have true rest. Jesus loves you. He died for you. He was raised and he lives for you. So I encourage you to seek him out, live for him. You don't have to live like life like a broken arrow. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Another of the songs of ascent is 130, and so I want to pray that, that psalm. So let me pray. Out of the depths we cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear our voices. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of our pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who of us could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We wait for the Lord, our souls wait, and in your word we hope. Our souls wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. We hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem us from all our iniquities. God, thank you that through Christ you've redeemed us for all our iniquities. For those that don't know you, God, help them to see that. Help them that you're wait, help them know that you're waiting with open arms through Christ that they could know you, that they could find rest. God, help us to re respond to the garbage that goes on in our communities by responding as you would do, by loving and discipling people through the gospel. And for these parents, God, I pray that you would help them to not struggle with their own flesh and blood, but give themselves to you that they might show your goodness through the way they parent their children, that they would form these weapons of war, these little arrows, that they would be hands and in the, in the, they would be arrows in the hands of a warrior that we could fight for the hearts and souls of ourselves, our families, and our communities. All to your glory and for our rest. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you guys.